the resource scarcity is already essentially abolished, you know, in practical terms, even if not in distributional terms, that is the condition of industrial abundance, and that the real question is time, you know, it's a tremendous kind of shift in perspective. Mm. And I think he, you know, like it's worth dwelling on, I think, the fact that we should be focused on time as the real scarcity, not on the scarcity of goods. In a world, like I say, of industrial production, the old question of scarcity falls behind. I think all of that is very important. Dearest of our dear patrons, the most intimate circle, welcome to the 2023 BungaCast Reading Club, Episode 2. Here we'll be focusing on three big themes, as I'm sure you already know, freedom, legitimacy, and globalization. Thanks again to everyone who has been with us in last year's syllabus and who already joined us uh, for the beginning of this year's syllabus. Um, So welcome, hello, and it's lovely to see you all. So as I mentioned at the beginning of the last episode, we've tried this year uh, by incorporating some of your comments, adapted and refocused the reading club. So you'll notice that there are fewer works and that they're longer um, when we hope you and we ourselves get more of out of it than uh, before. So the first four episodes, and this is the second of those four uh, of this year's reading club, are dedicated to Martin Hagland and his 2019 book, This Life, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom. Uh, its UK subtitle is a bit different. It's Why Mortality Makes Us Free, but both, uh, I guess, explain what's inside. So uh, here we're going to discuss chapter four, natural and spiritual freedom, and chapter five, the value of our finite time. But before that, I'd like to say hello uh, to George and Phil and ask them what they thought of uh, of these chapters. I think they were pretty meaty, pretty central chapters. Well, yeah, I'm firstly doing well. Secondly, central chapters. Yep, literally right bang in, in the middle of the book. So um, very core, I guess, um, geographically or physically um, to the book. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can tell you what I thought about them or we can, we can discuss them. What, determinist, you know. <laughs> why, why are you shaking your head at that? You ask, that, <laughs> are they central chapters? Answer, quite literally, yes. Mm. It's uh I mean, it's a, it's a more technical read, I suppose, than the first earlier part of the book, um, particularly when it gets into some of the uh, Marxist political economy. Um, I'm not, you know, I'd say perhaps I'm not as perhaps uh, convinced, um, but, it, you know, given that we're midway through the book, um, you know, uh, obviously it's incumbent on us to be open-minded until the end. Um but it's still, you know, like it's still, I'm still reminded of what a kind of um, remarkably ambitious and bold book it is, given that in this section, you know, he pivots away from, uh, you know, basic kind of existential questions to very or more concrete and practical questions of economy. Um, so, yeah, anyway. I guess it is It is worth just saying that it does go from, so we did part one and now we're on to part two. And I guess given the aspiration to kind of have almost from the, the very start of what it is to be a human going all the way to democratic socialism, spoiler alert, at the end of the book, there's, you know, there is a kind of, I guess the question is, is that transition successful moving from the kind of the part one on secular faith, the kind of philosophical underpinnings to 
part two, which still very philosophical, but as Phil was saying, second part on spiritual freedom is is trying to be a bit more practical, a bit more political, a bit more social. So yeah, I think a lot to discuss in these two chapters. Okay, so um, what we're going to do here, I'm going to start off by just outlining what is in chapter four and five so that we're all on the same page. We know what was in here and maybe you read the book a little while ago and um, want to be reminded what is specifically in chapters four and five, uh, which as I say are pretty important chapters. Um, and then we will deal with your questions from the last episode, uh, some of which I think perhaps might be resolved by what is contained in chapter four and five, but we'll see uh, when we get there and then we'll proceed with the main discussion, of course. Um, before anything else, I wanted to remind you that there are local reading clubs across uh, a range of cities in North America, Europe, and uh, Australasia. And if you would like to join one, please do get in touch at info at bungacast.com or drop us a message um, via Patreon. And we will try to put you in touch with other people. Um, there's quite a lot of reading clubs where there's maybe only one or two people and they're looking for more to join. Um, so I will post up um, on the Patreon um, a list of where there are people um, and how many more or less there are um, so that you might want to uh, see if you want to join. Um, there's people looking, people have recently gone in touch um, in uh, Buffalo, New York, uh, Atlanta, uh, the east of England, uh, Glasgow and Edinburgh, many other places besides, um, but also looking for other listeners around that area to meet up in person and uh, continue on the discussion or follow along the discussion or preempt our discussion even if you want to do it that way. Um, that's all up to you. So anyway, again, do get in touch, info at bungacast.com if you'd like to uh, join or start up a local reading club. Okay, so what's in chapter four and five? In chapter four, Martin Hagland argues that even non-human living beings have natural freedom. Uh, so animals, for example, engage in self-reproduction, they strive to continue to be alive despite suffering, and they enjoy a surplus of time. Um, all living beings enjoy a surplus of time, Martin Hagland contends, um, so that they have time for self-enjoyment, which is distinct from self-preservation. Um, so that means that animals might play or, you know, uh, care for themselves or whatever stuff, which is, which is beyond just mere self-preservation. They have some surplus or excess time. But Martin, Martin Hagland is at pains to portray humans as exceptional, for they are the only animals which possess spiritual freedom. And we possess spiritual freedom because we are able to ask ourselves, what should I do? Uh, which also entails the follow-on, who should I be? And then, crucially, um, particularly for Martin Hagland, what should I do with my time? Um, and that is the component. Those are the kind of building blocks of what spiritual freedom is. This spiritual freedom has moral implications, uh, he goes on to explain through chapter four, um, because what we take to be the right thing to do, the right way to act um, when presented with choices is a, a crucial part of this freedom. So for Martin Hagland, this implies not just a test of reason, but a test of faith. Um, how committed are we to the identities we have chosen? So, for example, if you're presented with a dilemma and you are a father, as well as having uh, political commitments as an activist, um, those two identities might come into uh, clash with each other. So then this dilemma will present you with a choice, one which you will have to resolve. That is uh, central to having spiritual freedom, making these choices and committing to things as ends in themselves rather than just um, doing things for instrumental reasons. For example, um, you act morally to avoid punishment from God um, or to strive for salvation. Instead, no real spiritual freedom means grappling with uh, this secular notion that we have to determine what to do with our time and that ultimately it's up to us. So this is a resolutely secular account of life in which um, one's own 
our own mortality is central. Uh, chapter five, then, is uh, a point at which the book kind of shifts in in tone, um, even in pace to a certain extent, and certainly in terms of what it deals with. Um, it's the central theoretical chapter of the book in which uh, Martin's philosophy, Martin, we're on first name terms now, uh, Hegelin's philosophical vision um, and social critique are brought together. So it ties a secular understanding of the meaning of mortality and its implication for the time of our lives which is all stuff that we saw in the last episode, and the political questions of our social organization, one which is currently, under capitalism, founded uh, on time as a measure of value, specifically labor time. So um, in this chapter, Martin Hagelin discusses Marx's view that value in capitalism is rooted in labor time. And he tries to go deeper by tying this to a philosophical position, his own philosophical position, that what is essential is the time of our lives. And that spiritual freedom means being free to decide to do with, uh, to decide what to do with that time. This, um, for Hegel, is would be an actualization of the idea of freedom developed by Hegel. For Hegel, and here I quote: "The question is whether the modern state and the market economy, um, on which it depends, are compatible with an actual or wirklich free society, an actually free society." Um, a page later, Martin Hagland goes on to say, Marx's critique is best understood as motivated by a commitment to making the idea of freedom actual, real, work, work, wirklich, <laughs> workable. Um, so then uh, just to round this off, um, he, chap, uh, Martin Hagland finishes off chapter five by running through a sort of Marxism 101, I guess, um, but it's quite an enlivening one. I'm going to ask the guys what they thought of it um, a little while on. Um, or Certainly it's a kind of... Uh, Kind of a useful introduction to Capital Volume One, actually. Um, I've, I've uh, read few, few kind of neater ones, um, so it's definitely worth it just for that. But anyway, in this, Martin Hagelin introduces the idea that the labor theory of value was not meant to be taken as a truth about human societies in general, but rather about capitalism. So Hagelin, through an engagement with Marx's Grundrisse, argues that for us to be truly free, we need to adopt a different measure of value not one based on socially necessary labor time, but on what he calls socially available free time. Um, all very interesting stuff. I hope you were able to follow that. I assume you will, you will have been able to because you've read the book. Okay, um, listener questions. We're going to deal with um, various points, which I think mainly relate to the question of religion, which of course is fitting because that's what the first half of the book deals with. Um, a lot of these questions deal with whether Hagland is um, mischaracterizes religion or religious belief or religious believers. So anyway, um, let me let me go through these. Firstly, Jacob Cart says, Hagelin bases his entire critique of religion on a fine point, the belief in eternity. He begins with examples of religious thought and shows how they are actually expressions of secular faith that are logically inconsistent with the belief in the eternal. I agree, says Jacob Cart, but when your subject is religion, pointing out a logical inconsistency doesn't necessarily win the argument. If a person, for example, is transformed by their encounter with religion in a way that causes them to value these positive expressions of secular faith, i.e. things that we value in, in real life, um, then uh, does the logical inconsistency of basing those beliefs on eternity actually matter? Or is it just a trick that we arrive at the same conclusions? Um, basically, you know, if, if believing in God makes you care for your family, then who cares if it's kind of this fake belief in God? You know, um, the important thing is that you're valuing the things that you value in in uh, temporal life. 
In a world where any action at all is anchored in an acceptance of the cognitive dissonance required to live in the end of the end of history, I'm not sure this his central objection is powerful enough to discount the act of reaching these conclusions, quote-unquote, falsely, i.e. through a faith based on the belief in eternity. Um, okay, we're going to park that just for a second unless you guys want to comment on that immediately because I think the one of the next questions touches on similar ground, so we can take them in a round. Um, Jeffrey Martin says, I haven't been able to make myself even slightly sympathetic to Hagelin's argument <clears throat> with regard to values being devalued in light of eternity, in by light of eternity or a commitment to eternity, because whatever his intention, it doesn't address the religious position on its own terms, instead mischaracterizing it and constructing an inconsistency that isn't there. So Jeffrey Martin says that religious value systems, ethical frameworks, theologies, all postulate hierarchies of values. For example, the goods of this life, including the lives of children murdered at Sandy Hook, are good because it is good to exist, to exist in relationships with parents and friends, and to develop to maturity and fulfill both individual and communal purposes, as well as the telos of belonging to human nature as such. Religious people aren't being inconsistent in mourning their loss um, because they were meant to live out their lives as bearer of divine impress, even though eternity is conceptualized as better in every respect. So the fact that one is better doesn't mean that the other isn't as good good at all. Just because you believe in eternity and that's what we're all moving towards doesn't mean that temporal life isn't important. Um, the fact that one is recognized as good doesn't mean that the other is superfluous. Absolute and relative goods can coexist. Good and better things can coexist. To posit that a belief in eternity necessarily devalues temporal life presupposes that eternity entails something like agnostic contempt for the body and its life. And while polemicists might like to indulge in such insinuations, I would suggest that the billions of religious believers of nearly countless doctrines throughout the course of human history, simultaneously valuing both this life and eternity, carry greater weight than a philosopher or polemicist asking the somewhat petulant question, if God is real, why are you mad that your child got killed? Oh, I don't know, perhaps because they love the child. And in the religious imagination, such love is a participation in divine love. Okay, guys, so uh, does Hagland mischaracterize religion? Hey there, you've reached the end of a short excerpt from an episode that's been released only to our patrons. If you'd like to join us and gain access to around two Patreon-exclusive episodes a month, please go to patreon.com slash We'd love to have you.